the Protestant Revolution. It championed a free press that would give the humblest farm boy access to learning and the Bible. Nearly 500 years later, the Bible is still the best-selling book of the year every year. A recent study estimates that nearly 90% of all homes in America have at least one copy of the Bible. Now, while there is an abundance of access to the text, there is equally an abundance of confusion as how to read it. This week on Advent Next, we are continuing our discussion with Dr. Martin Hanna, Professor of Christian Theology, exploring the topic of Bible study methods. Taking from his article, Men and Women in Church Order, we're discussing key principles for coming to sound interpretations of the best-selling book of all time. I'm so glad to have uh, Dr. Martin Hanna here um, as our guest today. We have our guest co-host, uh, Maxwell Aka. Yo. <laughs> hi, Kendra, and hi, Max. It's good to be here. Yeah, so glad to have you. And we're talking a little bit about uh, part twoing of the article that you contributed to the Women in Ordination book mm-hmm. um, that's basically dealing with hermeneutics. And during the break, um, uh, my boss came in and he said, this is great. You know, I actually had, had four friends who recently left the church over this passage uh, in Paul's writings that says mm-hmm. the law has been done away with. And... Can you, can you, you're going to say something about that before I kind of shifted the conversation. But yeah, like what is that phenomenon where we're looking at a text and we're misinterpreting Paul's uh, initial intention mm-hmm. in writing that? Mm-hmm. I think this would be another example of what Peter was talking about when he said Paul wrote some things hard to be understood. Mm-hmm. And Paul's teaching on the law and grace is quite uh, complicated mm-hmm. and challenging um, no matter what position you take on it, whether you you feel that Christians should be upholding the law or whether you think Christians should not be dealing with the law, uh, Paul's teachings are difficult to understand on this point. Mm. And and one of the keys is something that we mentioned last time, which is Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians 9, to those who are under the law, I speak as if I'm under the law. Mm -hmm. Mm. And to those who are not under the law, I speak as if I'm not under the law. Mm. So then how do we figure out what Paul really thinks about the law? It can be challenging. Mm. Mm. And in, in our uh, Christian community, uh, we have learned, you know, decades and decades ago in the 1880s that uh, when Paul talks about the law in Galatians, he is including both the ceremonial law and the moral law. Mm-hmm. Both categories of law are the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ mm-hmm. so that we might be justified by faith. And then he says, now that we have come to faith in Christ, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Mm-hmm. And so we understand that, that in this passage, Galatians chapter 3, Paul is referring to both the moral and the ceremonial law. Mm. But in some religious communities, it's hard to digest that because mm. we right. want to, to uphold and rightly want to uphold the principles of the moral law. Thou shalt mm. not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou mm. shalt not commit adultery. These are right. wonderful eternal principles. Mm. And so we stumble over Paul's difficult language when he says we're no longer under the law. Mm. What does that really mean? Right. I think it means we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. I think it means the law is written in our hearts in the principle of love. So the mm. reason I don't commit adultery is because I love my wife, mm. not because I'm under bondage to the law. Mm. But, but sometimes when we want to uphold these principles of the law, we get uncomfortable with the language Paul uses mm. when he says we're no longer under the law. Right. And, and there are many texts where he says difficult things like that. Right now, we're just talking about Galatians three. Yeah, I, I think I think we, we want to kind of get into some of the texts because, 
I mean, in your experience as a professor and as a pastor, I'm sure you've come across some of these like misreadings of the text. And mm-hmm. like we talked about last time, you know, sometimes we think we're having a plain reading when we're just looking at it and we're reading it in our context, uh, but we don't do maybe due diligence in understanding what this is really talking about. Yeah. What are some other issues that we tend to not spend enough time understanding what this means and we kind of say, oh, this is very obvious what this mm-hmm. means mm-hmm. and we kind of shut off our brains. Well, like like we were talking about last session and I think I'll continue at this session because that was the focus of my article, we misunderstand uh, when Paul uses gendered language. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says something to men and we assume that it doesn't apply to women because he's, he, if he wanted to mention women, he would have said so, wouldn't he? Mm. And then he says something else to women, and we say, well, that doesn't apply to men because he didn't mention the men. I mm. think this is a misunderstanding of Paul. Uh, the, the inspired word of God in Scripture is for everybody. And so the parts that were specifically addressed to women are still for me to pay attention to, even though I'm a male reader. Mm. Mm. And the parts that were specifically addressed to men still apply to you, even though you're a female reader, Kendra. Mm, right. So that, that's, that's an, an example of the issue. Uh, I remember when I was, yeah. I was reading your article yesterday, and there was a line, I, I believe it was a quote from the Old Testament, and it said something to the effect, I wish I had re- remembered what verse it was, maybe mm-hmm. it'll come to you, but it was something to the effect of... Uh, speaking about a, a law about something that you would or wouldn't do to your brother, comma, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew uh-huh. woman, uh-huh. and using that term brother as a catch-all for any Israelite. Right. That's right. Regardless of their gender. I thought mm-hmm. that was very interesting because I'd not caught that verse before. Yeah. Yeah. It's an example of the fact that generic masculine language is used. Mm. So your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman. Mm. And all through Paul's writings, he talks about brethren, Mm. I write to you, brethren. Well, mm. what does brethren mean? Does it mean he's only addressing the men? Or mm. is he talking about the brotherhood of Christians who are mm. sons and daughters of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, does the use of masculine language exclude women right. or does it include women? And, and we have a perfect example of Phoebe. I mean, Paul calls her uh, diakonos, which mm-hmm. is the, the male version of the word deacon. That's and right. so he uses a very a male word to describe a female in leadership. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Phoebe is a deacon of the church. Romans 16, for those who want to know where to find the text, Romans mm-hmm. 16 verse 1 uh, and onwards, Phoebe is a deacon of the church. And this is classic example of the problem of interpreting Paul. Mm-hmm. Because in another place, Paul says the deacon should be husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how can Phoebe be a deacon if she's not a husband? Mm-hmm. Because she's a woman. But the principal husband of one wife addressed to a man applies also to a woman who is to be wife of one husband. Right. So Paul doesn't have to spell it out in the feminine because it's the principle being communicated. Mm. His point is not to say that deacons must be men. His point is to say that deacons, if they're married, must be faithful, blameless, Mm. persons of high character. Mm -hmm. But you have to read a little bit beneath the surface to get the real spiritual point. If you just Mm. scratch the surface of the text, you think it's all about men versus women or women versus men. Now, we know this is not Paul's message because he says clearly in Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there is no male or female. There's Mm. no Jew nor Greek. But there's some things in the Bible that were addressed to the Jews, Mm. which brings us back to the law issue that we started with. Uh, Some Christians say, well, the, the Old Testament was written to the Jews. Why should we listen to it? Well, it's still part of the inspired scriptures, Mm -hmm. which Mm. is the rule of faith and practice for all Christians, Mm. even though every word of the Old Testament was written to Jews. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot for me to learn from it. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and when Paul says in the New Testament, study the scriptures to show yourselves approved unto God, he has in mind the Old Testament scriptures. Right. Mm -hmm. I think people are very averse to thinking that they need training to understand the Bible. Mm -hmm. You know, that they want to say, no, like I can have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit and I don't need anybody to come and make commentary for what I'm reading. And in some level, I think that there's validity to that. Mm. And then there are some areas where that's not valid. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in a society where the Bible is so free and accessible that we don't have to go to monasteries or different scholastic institutions to study it. I think you're quite right. The irony of it, though, is that even persons who claim that everybody should be able to interpret the Bible for themselves without the scholars, mm -hmm. uh, those persons are not consistent in holding that position because they want to impose their interpretation of the text on somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when there's a disagreement about how to interpret the Bible, they say, no, I'm the one who has it right, and you need to listen to me because I'm a good Bible student. Mm. You know, well, if you if you really were legalistic about everybody interpreting it for itself, you would allow everyone to have their different interpretations. Mm. But the very fact that you want to have the right interpretation mm -hmm. means that you need some principles to guide you in your interpretation. Mm. And it's interesting because I think one of the the critiques of Protestantism coming out of the Reformation from the Catholic side was you guys are going to have interpretive chaos. Like you, Everyone's going to have a reading of this thing mm -hmm. rather than having this one centralized group of experts dictating and, and clarifying, like, this is what it means. Like, mm -hmm. we're reading this the right way. And I think we get into this headspace where we, we have this very strong reaction against any idea that there needs to be expertise employed in interpreting the scriptures because to us we're like whoa that's scholasticism mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. we're we don't want to fall into that ditch and what we end up doing is inadvertently confirming that criticism from back in the day which is well we're going to have interpretive chaos mm -hmm. because we don't want to think that we need anything more than just you know what the reformers were fighting for us and our own bible and our relationship with god mm -hmm. and we'll get it all right yeah and i think it's like it's justification by faith, not doctorate by faith, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and the issue goes beyond just the question of experts versus non-experts. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the issue goes to, are we willing to listen to other people mm. who read the Bible alongside us, mm. even if they are fellow non-experts? You know, mm. A group of non-experts reading the Bible together can learn from each other. Right. And a group mm. of experts reading the Bible together can learn from each other. Mm. So we tend to think what I see in the Bible is all that's there. Mm. But God says, I give the spirit to all the members of the church, mm. to the scholars, to the laymen, and everyone reading the Bible can make a contribution and say, this is what I see in the text, and we can learn from each other. It's and true. that's an important principle of hermeneutics as well. I think it's even an important principle of how maybe our congregation should be centered mm -hmm. because we don't tend to have kind of the format to facilitate those types of conversations where every member is looking at a text and we're all bringing mm -hmm. uh, what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about or maybe our own expertise is helping mm -hmm. us to see in the, in the text. And so we end up having just one person uh, you know, maybe giving a sermon out of a text and then we all listen and then we all separately go our separate ways and we don't discuss it mm -hmm. with each other and maybe we'll read a commentary. But I think you're right. I think we need the multiplicity of minds coming together. Yeah. And again, we're not imposing this idea on the scriptures. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. First Corinthians 14, which we discussed last time, says you may all prophesy one by one mm -hmm. that all may be edified and that mm -hmm. all may be benefited. Mm -hmm. 
and that's 1 Corinthians 14. In the, later in the same text, he says, but the women should be quiet. He's talking about women who are out of order, not organize themselves properly, uh, and, and not contributing to the edification. But when you're edifying each other, you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be edified. So mm. the gifts of the church, the gifts of the spirit are distributed to every member of the church. Mm. I like Ephesians 4, which says, in order for the body to be healthy and to grow up, we need what is supplied by every member. Mm. And Paul goes on to say, by every joint and every sinew, mm -hmm. every member of the church has a gift of the spirit and can contribute to the understanding of what God wants to accomplish through his people. And that's a principle of hermeneutics too right. that we tend to overlook. Mm. I think that's a really important church model structure. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, because I think where on earth will we find this model where, where every member is coming together at a specific text mm -hmm. and wrestling through it? I think right now we've left that fight up to what we consider the titans, you know, mm -hmm. of, of scholarship. Yeah. And there's another important point. The, the goal of interpretation is partly to find out what the text says, but it's also partly to find out how should we apply this text today, mm. given the unique challenges that we face today. And that's where the spirit is needed also. So I know what Paul said, but how do I apply that today? In, in our community of faith, for example, we don't have an office called bishop, mm. but Paul talks about bishops. Right. So how do we apply what he says about bishops to what we call the office of pastor? Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because kind of the the structure you're hinting at, Kendra, of believers coming together and wrestling with those kinds of questions. I almost feel like our Sabbath schools are trying to be that, or at some point we're meant to be that type of interaction. But I don't know if I see that, and I could maybe feel that to both of you because I think that's maybe the most obvious place where that could happen for us now. But I don't know if it seems likely or common as far as I've observed out of the kinds of interactions we have. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have opinions on that. but Yeah, I mean, I actually have been going to this class um, where we do exactly that. Like mm -hmm. we'll read through 10, 10 verses of the Bible and then we'll go through these different categories of understanding of like what what's the structure, any keywords, any uh, allusions to other passages. Um, and then looking at what, what the application might be. And mm. so I've, I've found that to be so helpful because when one person is giving that study, you get one one mind, but everybody in the class is like shouting out their opinions and, and what they think or what they're reading from the text. And it's such a richer mm -hmm. understanding of the word. Um, and I think that uh, maybe it's a part of our isolation of society that kind of gets us to not talk about these things with each other. But I think you're right. I think the the classroom is, is a place where that definitely could and should happen. Yeah, and we need, as I said before, to be focused on the relevance of the text for mm. how we live life today. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we read the Bible as if it's an end in itself. But mm. Jesus says, you search the scriptures and mm. they tell you about me. Mm -hmm. mm. And But you wouldn't come to me that you might have life. That's mm -hmm. John right. chapter 8. Uh, so we, we need to realize that the Bible is like glasses, you know, you put on the glasses so you can see the world better. Mm. It's not just about glasses that you take off and you study the glasses. Right. So the, the spirit is needed to help us to understand the words in the text, but it's also needed to help us understand how to apply those words in right. real life. Now, let me give you another case study from the difficult writings of Paul. Yes. Uh, this time, first Timothy chapter two, uh, Paul says, I want the men to pray. That's mm -hmm. chapter 2, verse 8. I want the men to pray. He never says, I want the women to pray. 
Hmm. Does that mean women shouldn't pray in church? Not at all, because in 1 Corinthians 11, like we discussed last time, women can pray and prophesy in church. Hmm. But in 1 Timothy 2.8, all he says is, I want the men to pray. If you just read the surface of the text, you say, Paul said men should pray. And I know what the text says. Hmm. But what's the principle in the text? Christians should pray, mm-hmm. male or female. Now, in the very next verse, 1 Timothy 2.9, Paul says, I want the women to be modest. Mm. Well, does that mean that men who are Christians don't have to be modest? Not at all. Mm. The advice he gives to the women about modesty applies also to men. Mm. And the advice he gives to men about praying applies also to women. But when you start talking about application, people say, well, you're not talking about hermeneutics anymore. You're just applying it and you do what you want to do. But no, there are principles about applying as well. Application is part of hermeneutics. It's part of interpretation. You don't use the right principles. You end up with the wrong application. Mm -hmm. And then you have only men praying in church. Women can't pray. And only women need to be modest, which is obviously not the point Paul was making. Now, here's a meta question about that, though. It's Uh like my inner skeptical fundamentalist who Mm -hmm. hates hermeneutics is (laughs) reeling at this. Why would Paul speak that way? You know, why, why would Paul single out groups to give generally applicable mm-hmm. instructions? What, mm-hmm. Why speak in that manner? Because to me, as a modern Westerner, that seems confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's because Paul is addressing a particular situation. Mm-hmm. And, and I only pulled out one little element out of the text where he says men should pray. But he says more than that. He says, pray without wrath, mm-hmm. pray lifting holy hands. Mm-hmm. So in the church at Ephesus to which Paul was writing to Timothy about that church, apparently the men had a problem of anger and wrath. And in Mm. fact, uh, he says uh, some of them should be silent in chapter 1. He Mm. had disciplined some of the men in the church, and he called them by name, and he said, I'll silence them till they learn how to speak with respect for authority. Mm. So it's not only women silence in this chapter. Later on in chapter 2, he's going to silence some women who are out of order as well. But he's addressing a specific problem. That's the hermeneutical point, context. What's mm. the context in the church of Ephesus? If the men were praying with wrath and anger and not living holy hands, he says, I want you men to straighten up, fly right, mm. uh, pray with humility, uh, pray with holy hands, pray without wrath. But that doesn't mean that women shouldn't pray that way also, right. you see? And then he turns to the women who may have had a particular problem with modesty, mm. and he addresses them on the area where they needed advice. Mm. It doesn't mean he's arguing that men don't need to be modest. Mm. Right. And so this kind of subtle understanding of the deeper principle in the text is very important for hermeneutics, because yeah. if you just read the surface, you say, oh, in this verse, he's talking to men, so we women don't have to listen to that. Right. And I'm sure that Paul, when he wrote these letters to these specific churches, wasn't thinking that this was going to be used as doctrine for the rest of the 2,000 years, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that I think he probably would have gave a little more background information, like at Ephesus, we were dealing with issues with, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is true, yeah. but, but even if he was consciously thinking about 2,000 years later, mm. he would not be able to say everything that we need him to say. Right. That's because true. Because life is so complicated, mm. and, mm. and it's really a challenge to figure out how do you take instruction given in the Bible 2,000 years ago and apply it to a new situation today. Mm. Mm. You know, how do you decide which television programs to watch and which ones not to watch? And Paul couldn't see that. Paul, <laughs> even if he saw it, right. he, he would have to write millions of pages to answer all the technical <laughs> questions right. about which, which television shows to watch. Uh, we don't even have those books written today. and We don't have agreements today right. to which television shows to watch. But the Holy Spirit is present Mm -hmm. to help us apply the principles of Scripture 
when we make our decisions about our television watching. Mm. Right. I, th- it, I think that that's so key. Like, how do you how do you deal with the principle? And there's um, I, I was taking this class over the summer, and it was talking about that there's a, something called ultimate ethics. Mm-hmm. You know, we have Bible ethics, and then there's ultimate ethics. And I think that that's a very fascinating concept because what they were talking about was that the Bible gives a set of ethics, but like God is trying to move us to this kind of back to the Garden of Eden kind of thing. You know, like there's an ultimate place that he's bringing us Mm -hmm. and the Bible may not of itself contain the highest place he wants us to go. Mm -hmm. And have have you heard of this concept? Yeah, I would put it this way. The the Bible points us toward the ideal, Mm -hmm. uh, but the Bible meets us where we are, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so God adapts himself to the situation of his people. A classic example of that is when Israel wanted a king, you see, mm. and God didn't want them to have a king, but they insisted, so he gave them a king. Mm. Uh, and then God turns around and uses the symbolism of kingship to describe God's own authority. Mm. God is king of kings and lord of lords. Mm. But yet the idea of kingship is really a, a limited, fallible flawed, fallen human model. Right. But God meets us where we are, uses that language. Mm. Right. But then if we misunderstand that, then we try to become kings and dominate other people and, and think mm. that they must listen to me because I'm the king, I have the authority. That's what it means to be a pastor. But a pastor really isn't a king. Right. Uh, or so, we sanction that kind of thinking for the figures that we want to see in those positions. Exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's so easy to read into the text things that we don't tend to think about. I mean, the culture that we grew up in or things that have been spoken to us so many times that we don't even think about it. Uh, I think it's very easy to read that into the text. Like you're talking about, oh, you know, Paul was silencing men in these chapters as much as he was silencing women, but we don't even see it. Like mm-hmm. we don't even see that he did this. We just assume that, no, because women need to be in a more of a subordinate mm-hmm. place. Like we totally see that, but we miss the other p- yeah, parts yeah, of the scripture, yeah. which is it's very interesting. It's interesting now that you mentioned that. It reminds me of the contrast between 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever we're discussing men and women in church order, we go to 1 Timothy 3, but we never go to 1 Timothy 5. Now, interestingly, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives the qualifications for men in leadership. Mm-hmm. But in 1 Timothy 5, he gives the qualifications for women in leadership, and the qualifications are the same. Mm. Mm. But because we are obsessed with men as leaders, we never pay attention to 1 Timothy 5. Mm. You know? And we don't notice that he's talking about male and female leaders. At least that's what I see in the text. Mm. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so we, we need to really pay attention. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3, for example, classic case, he says the, the male leader who is married... Uh, should be blameless, and then he gives an example of what that looks like. He says, husband of one wife. Do you know that he uses the same language or similar language in chapter 5? Mm. talks about the, the elder woman who is a leader in the church. She should also be blameless, mm-hmm. but she should be wife of one husband. Oh, wow. I, I, don't right think I've, I don't think I've ever read yeah. that. <laughs> right in the text. But right, see, right. we assume yeah. that in chapter 3, he's talking about church leaders. Yeah. In chapter chapter five, he's just talking about women, but not leaders. Right. But if you pay careful attention to the text, uh, it's the qualification of men and women who are leaders in the church, right. and men and women can be leaders in the church. I have kind of this imaginary interlocutor in my head, and it's my hypothetical reformed friend. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't have reformed friends, but like yeah. you know, if the, if we had like a staunch Calvinist sitting at this table, I think in our discussion of 1 Timothy and our discussion of 1 Corinthians, Mm -hmm. they would say, well, you guys are just making everything circumstantial. 
And obviously these, you know, we need to read these sections as applying, like, just to, so for example, of course the women can be in leadership in the church in First Timothy. Of course they can. They can lead the women. Mm-hmm. The women can teach girls. Yeah. And that's it. And that's, that's the delimitation, and that's what makes these texts all harmonize together. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? Well, it's just another case study of the difficulty of Paul, because Paul does say that the women should teach the younger women. The older mm-hmm. women should teach the younger women. Mm-hmm. And of course they should. Uh, what we miss, though, is that he also says in another place that the older men should teach the younger men. Mm-hmm. You see? Mm-hmm. So it's a principle that applies to the mature in the church should teach those who are younger in the church. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that under no circumstances should a woman ever teach a man. Right. Or under no circumstances should a man ever teach a woman. See, we're quite okay in our contemporary Christian culture with men teaching both male and female. Mm. But Paul didn't say that. He said the older men should teach the younger men mm. and the older women should teach the younger women. Mm. But the principle is concern for the uh, proper instruction of the next generation. And of mm-hmm. course, he addresses the men to teach the men and the women to teach the women. But it had really nothing to do with being a pastor. Right. I think that the, going back to uh, kind of the Calvinism, I mean, we, we, we talked about this, the fact that as a denomination, we don't subscribe to predestination. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking just at the text, the plain readings of like Romans, what is it, like uh, 9 through 11, mm-hmm. like we're not going to, we can't really defend our position on, um, you know, predestination based off of this text without really understanding what it's talking about. Yeah, yeah. A classic example there would be you ask people who don't belong to the Calvinist tradition, you say, do you believe in predestination? They say, no, I don't believe in predestination because in their mind, the Calvinistic view of predestination is wrong. And just kind of the clarification, just for anyone out there, predestination is, you know, that God has already preordained who is going to be saved and lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so if I don't believe what they believe... And, and we don't have time now to discuss whether right. they're right or not. We're just discussing hermeneutics. But if I don't believe what the Calvinist believes on this matter, I say, oh, I don't believe in predestination. But predestination is mentioned in the text of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So I need to know what does Scripture teach about predestination. Right. Mm-hmm. I need to filter out the Calvinistic view and filter out the non-Calvinistic view and just hear what Paul says about predestination in the text. Mm. Now, we just have a few minutes for this, but let me share a little nugget on this from the text you mentioned, uh, Romans 8. Um, Paul says, those whom God knows, he predestines, and those whom he predestines, he calls. And then in Galatians, he says, God called us to freedom. Mm. So I argue that there can be no contradiction between predestination and freedom, Mm. because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he called to freedom. Mm. So I put it this way. God has predestined me to be free. Mm. And I don't have a choice about that. <laughs> but God's predestined purpose is to facilitate my freedom mm. and set me up to make free choices. I would argue that that's the biblical interpretation of predestination. We don't have time to give a full defense of that today. Right. But hermeneutics and Bible study methods allows you to discover the possibilities that what you thought the text was saying might not really be what it's saying. Mm. Predestination might not be a problem for freedom. It might be God's commitment to our freedom. Hmm. So how would you kind of answer like the distinction between cultural and transcultural in the scripture? If somebody's reading by themselves, how do they know which uh, commands from Paul are cultural and which ones transcend all mm-hmm, time? Mm-hmm. 
I think one of our mistakes is to think that there's a clear dividing line between the two categories. Mm. Mm. So, so the key then becomes, can I figure out which text is transcultural and which one is cultural? Uh, some are more transcultural than others, and some are more culturally embedded than others, but I don't think there's any clear-cut line between the two. Mm. Uh, I'll put it this way. Every single word of Scripture is culturally embedded. Mm. Every single word of Scripture is a human word. Mm. And yet, God communicates a divine message through that human word. So there's this intersection and overlap between the divine and the human in the word of God. Mm. It is the word of God and it's the word of man, all mixed together. And the key to good Bible study methods is not to try to separate the two, mm. but to accept the fact that the two are mingled together and let that guide the way we interpret scripture. Mm. Right. If the Bible was not the word of God, then we wouldn't need to respect it because mm. it's only a human word. But if it was not a human word, we wouldn't be able to understand it. Mm. So it needs to be both divine and human. There's a kind of incarnation in the Bible, just like in Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man. So the Bible is fully the word of God. It's transcultural, but it is also fully immersed in human culture. Mm. Mm. So you can't get the transcultural meaning unless you go through the culture. Right. Mm. And that makes it more difficult, but it's also fascinating. It's very mm. enriching. Yeah. yeah. And we have the assistance of the Holy Spirit, and mm. we have our colleagues in the community of faith yeah. work with us together, and we have the scholars and the laymen participating in the process of Bible study. And the path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more onto the perfect day. Amen. One of the mistakes we yeah. make in Bible study is thinking we have to get it all settled today. Before this program is over, we have to answer all the questions. Right. right. But we're on a journey. Mm. And God is helping us over time to grow up in our understanding of what he has revealed. I think this has been a very enriching and enlightening conversation about this topic that, I mean, it's taken many scholars mm -hmm. uh, uh, continue to wrestle over the issue of hermeneutics and for us to begin to open our minds into understanding what are some of the issues when we're studying by ourselves and thinking that we're getting a plain reading, um, how do we understand that this is uh, written to a specific time and a specific people and really begin to uh, divulge the entirety of the text. And so as we wrap up, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on as a guest today, Dr. Martin Hanna and my co-host uh, uh, Maxwell Aka. Um, but I want to give my last word, I want you to have the last word, mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you would say to, I don't know, I, I feel like if we as a church are not doing hermeneutics well, we can miss a generation mm -hmm. um, who hasn't heard Christ and mm -hmm. we're so behind culturally um, that there would be no connect. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say um, to a church who's trying to witness to a world with bad hermeneutics? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a weird question, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, we, I think sometimes our concern is about what's wrong with the other person's hermeneutics, mm -hmm. what's wrong with the world, why they don't hear us, they can't understand what we're saying. Mm -hmm. And I think my message would be the opposite. Mm -hmm. We need to turn the spotlight on the inside mm -hmm. and check ourselves out first. As Paul says, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Mm -hmm. I'd say we as Christians, as people committed to Bible study, we need to examine ourselves whether we're doing good hermeneutics, whether our Bible study methods are adequate. Mm. Uh, we need to come to the Bible with humility. Mm. You see, this is not about Dr. Hannah's opinion mm. on women in ministry being the right one. This is about me trying to encourage all of us to come to the scriptures with an open heart, 
asking God's Holy Spirit to help us to do better mm. in our study of the Word of God. Mm. And wherever the light leads us, uh, when the Spirit assists us, we should be willing to follow it. Mm -hmm. If God leads us in this direction, we're willing to follow. If he leads us in the other direction, we're willing to follow. The problem is when we have already made up our mind. I know what the truth is, and now I'm trying to prove it from my Bible study. Right. Mm -hmm. That's going to get us into trouble every single time. Wow. Max, do you have any final thoughts on the subject? I think that wraps it up really well, actually. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah we got to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you heard it from Max. Uh, so thank you again for being on the program today. Uh, we hope to have you again as a guest in future um, discussions as we continue to use this as a platform to discuss uh, biblical topics and issues. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Kendra. Thank you, Max. It's awesome. been fun. We're so glad you joined us on today's podcast. Stay tuned for next week where we continue to discuss topics of life and faith that matter. But first, let us know what you think. Do we really need help studying the Bible, or should we be able to figure it out on our own?